Welcome to the Freak Show, fellow freaks. I'm Matthew Brockmeyer. I'm Krista Carmen. And this is... Murder Coaster. Ladies and gentlemen, we are so excited to have esteemed historian and author Michael Woolreich on the show today to discuss his new book, The Bishop and the Butterfly, Murder, Politics, and the End of the Jazz Age. Almost 93 years ago to the day, the enigmatic Vivian Gordon met a tragic end, strangled with a piece of clothesline and left in a desolate Bronx park. With ties to gangsters, booze, prostitution, loan sharking, racketeering, bank robbers, and blackmail schemes, her murder led to the downfall of Tammany Hall, a political behemoth that had stood for over a century and culminated in the resignation of the mayor of New York City himself. The narrative unfolds with all the elements of a riveting story, sex, bootleggers, and larger-than-life characters with names like Chowderhead, Greenie, and Doc, all against the backdrop of deep historical significance. Welcome, Michael. Welcome, and thank you so much for joining our show. Uh, thanks so much for having me. It's an honor. I'm uh, happy to be here. Yes, yes. I want to extend that welcome and and we'll I want to get right into it. And I think the best way to convey the story to the listeners would be if you wouldn't mind telling telling us all who the bishop and the butterfly from your book's title are and what they stand for. Uh, sure. Well, let's start with the butterfly, uh, Vivian Gordon, uh, who Matthew already introduced. Uh, she was she's the butterfly because she was she was known as a Broadway butterfly. Uh, she was, she had been an actor, but Broadway at that time was, you know, that was a place where all the kind of cool, hip uh, people hung out, a lot of criminals hung out. And so a Broadway butterfly was somebody who was in that milieu, uh, which she very much was. You know, she was, you know, she would frequent all the the nightclubs and the speakeasies to uh, pick up men generally. Uh, she would, she would seduce men and, you know, sometimes they would have, you know, they'd have an affair and she would, uh, and he would give her gifts and she made money that way. So she was a, a gold digger in that way, as, as they called it. But she would also, especially after, uh, the affair, she might blackmail, uh, the guy to get, squeeze as much out of him as she could. And it wasn't just her. She, she, as she became more successful in this business, she recruited a team of, of, uh, young women, uh, whom she called her her young 49ers, uh, as in as in gold miners. Uh, and she would instruct them on on how to, you know, how do you how do you meet this man? How do you get information on them? You know, what uh what do you do with that information once you have it? Uh so she had all these all these schemes uh for fleecing uh wealthy New Yorkers who were who were and and visitors from other cities uh who would come to Broadway to experience life in the roaring twenties. Uh, she also had, she had other schemes as, as, as Matthew mentioned, she was, uh, she had financial fraud schemes. She, she, uh, loaned money to gangsters. She invested in a, a bank robbery and in, in Oslo, Norway of all places. Uh, so she had a number of ways, illicit ways of making money and made quite a bit. She invested in, I think about, uh, bought a, 
almost $100,000 worth of, of real estate, which was uh, quite a lot in those days. Um, and so lived, lived the high life. Uh, the bishop refers to a man named Samuel Seabury, uh, who uh, Hamilton fans might recognize the name because it was his uh, great-great-grandfather, uh, Samuel Seabury, was the uh, the same name, the original, the, the first uh, Episcopalian bishop in the United States. Uh, and he tangled with, with Hamilton back during the uh, revolutionary era. So uh, the uh, Sam, Samuel Seabury that I'm writing about was, he, he was not a theologian. He came from a long line of clergymen, but he was, uh, he was a lawyer and a judge. And he was very, but he, he had that air. He had that kind of self-righteous you know, air of his ancestors and was, uh, you know, was always, you know, dressed immaculately and, you know, hair combed, uh, clean shaven, never, never swore. Uh, he was, you know, just this very upright, but pompous guy. And so people called him behind his back. They called him the bishop, partly a reference to his illustrious ancestor uh, and partly, you know, mocking his, uh, his manner. Hmm. Very fascinating, and I love the title. Can we can we talk? Can we go back just a teeny bit to the butterfly? Because is so. Did all of those schemes and things that she did that you that you mentioned were all of those things things that occurred after she lost her daughter? Or so? Can you talk a little bit how that 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 first arrest for prostitution and how you think that that uh, affected things going forward? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, it was it was a, tr a tragic story. Uh, she had been a you know she'd been an uh, actor when she was younger, and then got married and had a daughter. Uh, she married a man named John Bischoff, and her name was actually not Vivian Gordon. That was an alias that she adopted later. So she was her married name was Benita Bischoff, and her daughter was also named Benita. Uh, and they lived. Uh, they settled down in Philadelphia, uh, and you. Know, Vivian, or uh, everyone called her Vivian. Uh, so I'll, I'll continue, even though her she was known as Benita at this time. She loved her, you know, she adored her daughter, uh, who was, you know, a very talented dancer and actually performed on the stage in Philadelphia. Uh, and around the time she was eight, she and her her husband were fighting a lot. They were they were on the rocks, and one of the things they were fighting about was was their daughter. And Vivian Gordon wanted to take. Uh, Benita into New York and uh, try out for like the big Broadway shows. And he was against it. So eventually they separated and she did take her daughter uh, to New York and was living there. And then an incident happened that changed her life uh, forever. She uh, was arrested by a vice cop. Uh, his name was Andrew McLaughlin, a uh, very handsome uh, vice cop uh, on the force uh, known for for picking up a lot of prostitutes. And he arrested her. Uh, they went down to the women's court, which was this, it was a special court for women in the, in what's in Greenwich Village. Uh, it was, you know, the, it was a big scene actually, like, like men around New York would come and, you know, especially for the night court sessions, just to ogle the prostitutes getting arrested. Uh, <laughs> and uh, she was arrested and advised by her lawyer to plead guilty, which she did. 
And then despite the fact that this was her, that she pled guilty, that this was her first offense, that she had this eight-year-old daughter, the judge, uh, instead of putting her on parole, sentenced her to a reformatory of state uh, known as Bedford, um, you know, meant to reform, you know, young women who had gone astray. Uh, and so she went up there and it was an awful place, like despite what it was supposed to be. Uh, and instead of reforming her, it was, it did the opposite. She, there were, you know, a lot of other women there who kind of taught her, you know, people, women who had been prostitutes, uh, and other criminals who taught her essentially how to make, uh, make money, um, in, you know, in New York city during the, uh, during the roaring twenties. Uh, at the same time, she was branded, you know, she was now seen as a prostitute. So it really made it difficult uh, to get legitimate work at that point. And then worst of all, she lost her daughter. The, the, her uh, husband sued for divorce, got full custody of the daughter of her daughter. And she was never allowed to see her anymore after that. Uh, no contact. So she became, she was bitter. She was devastated uh, she was she was angry and she turned to a life of crime. She adopted this new alias, Vivian Gordon, and it sort of gave her this new identity and, you know, started, you know, started at first just as kind of a high end prostitute and then uh, gradually added more and more schemes uh, and even became uh, a madam herself where she was running a, a call girl service um, the uh, in the 1920s. And so one more question about that. So because you said this this changed her and she was bitter and she adopted this life of crime after going up to the reformatory. <clears throat> what are your thoughts on whether that initial arrest for the prostitution was warranted or not? I know there was a, a whole kind of scheme that went along with that as well. Yes, I left out a very important part uh, of this story, which is that after the after her conviction she told her parole officer that she believed that her husband john bishop had uh conspired with the vice cop andrew mclaughlin uh to set her up mm -hmm. uh she claimed she claimed that she was innocent that she'd only pleaded guilty on her lawyer's advice uh that she had uh and and certainly you know she had no record before then she wasn't you know she'd been you know she was a mom um the uh so, you know, she made this claim, but nobody really paid any attention to it. Uh, but all this time, as she, you know, you know, years as she developed this criminal career, she still harbored this, these um, feelings of, of anger and vengeance and, and hoped to find a way to get her daughter back and to make the vice cop and her husband pay for what they'd done to her, which had really destroyed her life. It's like her villain origin story. It's just crazy. Yes, thank you for um, for going into that a little bit more because I found that a really fascinating part of the story. Do we want to say anything about FDR? How how many people knew that he could, couldn't walk? Like, was it well known? Or I mean, it's just crazy to me that they were able to keep that a secret. Yeah, I mean, it was it was known. It's certainly known in certain circles, but they yeah they kept that information from the public. And, you know, I, I mean, I love the, I write about in the book about when he's, you know, after his, his first public emergence uh, after he's been crippled, 
and you know, walking, you know, up, this is at the uh, Democratic Convention, uh, and walking with his uh, son kind of by his side, you know, holding, you know, holding his arm, you know, he would, he would work for hours and hours to train himself to, to walk, which wasn't, he wasn't really walking. He was kind of sliding his feet uh, forward by and leaning on something, but it was able to create enough of an impression, you know, back when you didn't have, you know, where uh, newsreels weren't that common that, you know, people, felt like he was that you know he was able to do it and then he would stand there and lecture on the you know just hold on to the lectern with like white white fisted white knuckled uh you know keep keeping himself upright so it's really kind of amazing what he went through to hide this uh handicap that he had and to uh and amazing that you know more people weren't aware of it were his political rivals were aware of it though, were they not or weren't they oh um yes yeah, certainly they were but in you know, today's was, day and age he would yeah they, that would have been completely exploited uh yeah no here, honor like, back they, then huh yeah they 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 it was it would have seen it would have been disrespectful for them to you know bring that up uh and try to i mean they would they would sometimes try to make the case in subtle ways uh so and you know, he, his defenders, but also, you know, they would talk about how strong he was to, you know, mm. kind of cover, you know, respond to those insinuations. So it did exist, but certainly not, you know, now it would be just explicit, but it also wouldn't be seen, you know, having a disability would not be seen as a, as a problem politically. You know, we've had, right. you know, we, we, we've had no, not presidents, but senators, certainly the, you know, prominent senators with disabilities. And, you know, it can often, you know, especially if it's like a war, war injury, um, you know, can be a political advantage. Mm -hmm. um, but at that time it was perceived as being a, a sign of weakness. There's just so many crazy, uh, awesome characters in this book. Um, one of them that kind of stood out to me, John Rattleoff who was her lover and uh he he came from a good family a prominent background he was he'd become a lawyer like his father and he was married but he somehow fell into this life of crime there in new york city got himself tangled up in all kinds of stuff were a lot of people like of prominent background just kind of drawn to that and like maybe you could tell us a little bit more about him and what he represented uh sure uh, well, just, I mean, just some, some background first. So when she was, when they found her body and identified her and they went to her apartment uh, in, in the wealthy neighborhood of, of Murray Hill uh, in Manhattan, uh, they found a bunch of diaries. Uh, the, they were date books really, but she used them as diaries and wrote down some things about her business and some things about what was happening to her in her life. And she talked a lot about this guy, uh, John A. Radloff, uh, who and described him as being very dangerous and as having threatened her life um, on multiple occasions. Uh, so this guy had no criminal record. He was a respectable lawyer. Uh, his, his, his father had immigrated from Russia and had built a prosperous business in Brooklyn. Um the but he was entangled with a lot of illicit activities uh he wasn't uh he, he helped first of all he helped vivian gordon 
develop her her business operations. So when she would blackmail somebody, he would you know he would represent her, go to you know go to the tar- the, the blackmail target, and you know give them the the ultimatum uh, and collect the money from them. He also helped her manage some of her other businesses. He was the one who connected her with that uh, bank robbery in in Norway, attempted bank robbery in Norway. Um, so, uh, yeah, he just, you know, he, he liked money. He liked, uh, he spent it as soon as he got it. Uh, he liked, he liked women. He had a lot of affairs, uh, and he did this all, you know, underneath this, this veneer of respectability, which, I mean, it, it happens in, in every age, but it was particularly common in the 1920s because this was, you know, uh, this was prohibition. This was, first of all, you know, the economy was booming. So there was a lot of money and the prohibition may created a lot of opportunities for crime uh, and crime e- e- even became cool. Like, you know, normal people would go to these nightclubs where these notorious gangsters and bootleggers hung out or even owned the nightclubs a lot of times. And, but, you know, rich, respectable people would go there, you know, kind of slumming it uh, and party. So there was a lot, that line between respectability and crime really faded during this era. And, you know, a lot more people crossed over. Um, you know, I talk about uh, in the book, Judge Judge Crater, Joseph Crater, who was this uh, New York judge who mysteriously disappeared uh, one day and is, is, you know, his murders unsolved to this day. And, you know, he was this very respectable uh, judge uh, in, in New York and, you know, w- walked off one day with never seen again. And then they found out that he had all these mistresses and he had all these you know, gangster connections. So this was not that uncommon. Yeah. Um, and then we have this crazy mayor, uh, Jimmy Walker. Um, they call him the nightmare, huh? He was a character, huh? And the yeah, nightmare I, I, is such a good name. Like, <laughs> that's just phenomenal. <laughs> it's, uh, uh, yeah, he really was. Um, yeah, I, you know, our, our current mayor, Eric Adams, uh, calls himself the nightlife mayor. Uh, and, you know, there are some similarities, but that doesn't quite have the same ring as uh, as nightmare. Um, <laughs> the, uh, or the same, the same double connotation. So, uh, but but uh, Jimmy Walker, he was this, he was New York's Playboy mayor. He he um, dressed up, you know, in these you know gorgeous suits. You know, he had a, he had a personal tailor uh, who designed his uh, designed his suits and and uh, helped him you know plan his ensemble. He would change three times a day uh, in the morning. Uh, during work hours and then after work to go out to party and he was known for particularly known for partying uh he would be he would you know go to broadway uh with uh his mistress on on his arm who was a broadway star half his age her, her name was betty compton uh and he didn't try to hide it uh he this was this was his image this was his this is what uh people Everyone knew all about it and they loved him for it because again, this was the roaring twenties and everyone was having fun. And he, he embodied uh, that, the hedonism uh, and the excess uh, of the air. Uh, so, you know, he was you know, elected in uh, 20, uh, 1925. And then we ran for re-election re- in 1929. He was challenged by uh, 
a congressman, uh, Fiera LaGuardia, whose name is now famous because there's an airport named after him. Um, but Walker crushed him. The, you know, he was, you know, LaGuardia was like, look, this guy is not on the up and up. This guy has criminal connections. His administration is, they're, they're consorting with gangsters. Uh, he's, you know, living beyond his means, clearly. And he would, you know, LaGuardia made all these allegations, but no one paid much attention at that time in 1929. I love the way when he was in California, he would uh, come out in like what silk pajamas with like polka dots on him. <laughs> yeah, he, he gave a bunch of interviews. He, he uh, for, for his health, he went out to Palm Springs and lived on this, uh, stayed on this uh, ranch of a, of a wealthy friend of his uh the and you know go out and take sun baths as they called them every day and so yeah he'd give interviews the press loved him so and they'd be there every day and he'd give them in he'd give interviews in his pajamas and these like you know polka dotted purple pajamas mm -hmm. uh you know at, at some point some of his uh some of his people from the from tammany hall that you had mentioned before from that political machine kind of got word to him that maybe this is not such a good look uh for him that he needs to look be a little more serious, especially as these allegations against him uh, continue to mount. Uh, you Hugh Hefner oh. behind before his time or something. <laughs> oh, polka dot pajamas. The details you find out when you're a historian researching a... <laughs> and you are a historian, and this is a very historical book about New York politics and the 20s and 30s and Franklin Roosevelt's rise to the presidency. But you framed the narrative in the guise of true crime. And obviously Matthew and I do a true crime podcast. So we were very interested in this and you centered it around the mysterious murder of Vivian Gordon, like we talked about. Can you tell us about your process and what drew you to write this from a true crime perspective, as opposed to just like a straight nonfiction or, or how, uh, yeah, how you came about writing in the book in this form? Sure. I mean, I'm not an, I'm not an academic historian. Uh, I write, uh, but I, you know, I've written, uh, th this would be my third uh, history book or book with, with at least with history in it. Um, and, you know, I was looking for when, when you're writing about history for a popular audience, you need to pick, you know, like big names that people know uh, as, you know, as opposed to obscure people. Um, but a lot of those people have been written about to death. Uh, and so, you know, FDR being, being one example uh, so you know, putting out another book about FDR is not, you know, it's going to be challenging. So I was looking into his time as governor because everyone knows about uh, his time, you know, everyone knows about his presidency, but not much about the four years he was governor of New York. Uh, and as I was kind of digging into this, you know, I started digging into these these investigations that he in initiated that were led by the, the judge Samuel Seabury, the, the bishop uh, from the title. Uh, and I came across uh, this, you know, one reference to this murder of Vivian Gordon. Uh, and I started digging into that and it was, mm. and it was fascinating. I mean, I learned first of all, um, you know, first of all, just the murder itself, just on a human level and on a, on a uh, suspense level was fascinating because they, mm. there were so many twists and turns that tried to solve this mystery. Um, but it was also much more important than anyone seemed to have remembered the, the, sensation her murder was so sensational and she was connected in a way to those zebra investigations and that really created all this political pressure uh to on on fdr to expand the investigations and to confront tammany hall which he had been really hesitant to do 
So here it had the story that was like just this great story and also an important part of history. Uh, and so I was like, I got to tell the story. And so the approach I took, uh, you know, I modeled after uh, a bit after Devil in the White City, which has, as you know, has these two narratives. Like one story is the crime story, the the, the serial killer. The other story is the the World's Fair and the architect behind the World's Fair. And you know those sto my stories are actually much more connected. These were these were just connected in this in the sense that they occurred in the same place at the same time. Um, but it was brilliant because I mean, in my opinion, actually the the world's fair uh, story is actually even more interesting. But nobody would have read it if it if he pushed this you know this story about an architect. Mm -hmm. um, and so you have the kind of the suspenseful uh, serial killer and the and the investigation on one side, kind of drawing you through the book as you're also following along the development of the of the world's fair. So I, I took the same approach with this book. Um, the, there's, there, there are two threads. One thread is Vivian Gordon's murder and the, and the investigation. Uh, and then the other thread is the Samuel Seabury's investigation of Tammany Hall and of the mayor, uh, that had such a transform, transformational effect on New York City's history. Yeah. Um, I love the devil in the white city, but, um, yours feels more organic, like the, the way the two stories flow together. His is very like, almost like an outline you know going back and forth but oh that's interesting that yeah yeah thanks yeah i i think that's mainly i mean he's a larson terrific writer i think it mainly has to do with the fact that my th those stories were actually like completely discrete stories whereas oh, mine right. they're 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 interwoven i mean uh so you know we hadn't mentioned but what made the story so sensational was that five days before her murder vivian gordon had met with Samuel Seabury's investigation team. Uh, and she'd met with them because she wanted to tell her story about how she was framed by her husband and that uh, and that uh, vice cop. Uh, and indeed, Samuel Seabury had found that the cops uh, who were arrested in the in the in the vice squad who were arresting women for prostitution were many of them were, were crooked. Uh, I mean, this guy. Mm -hmm. Uh, this guy, Andrew McLaughlin, who arrested Vivian Gordon, lived in this fancy apartment with all these beautiful furnishings and took these, you know, luxurious vacations. And clearly was living a life beyond the salary of, you know, uh, a cop in in New York City. Uh, and he and Samuel Seabury, you know, de determined that there was indeed a conspiracy at the women's court where the cops would arrest innocent women uh, uh, and uh, bring them to court and kind of steer them to these corrupt lawyers, uh, and those those lawyers, those defense attorneys, would collect huge sums from the women if they could afford it, and then give kickbacks to the cops. Uh, and then, so you know, if you paid the lawyer's fee, then the lawyer would arrange for the cop not to show up, or the lawyer might, or the or the defense lawyer might give a bribe to the prosecutor, and the woman would get off, and all these people would make money. In the case, if the women couldn't afford the fee as it happened with Vivian Gordon, then, then they were screwed. Then they, then they were convicted and sent to the reformatory. So, you know, that's, that it's, that's the place, this, this women's court uh, where, you know, uh, Vivian Gordon was arrested, where Samuel Seabury found this conspiracy. That's, that's the nexus where these two stories came together uh, in a significant way. This is crazy. Um, yeah, it's real. It's, I mean, 
kudos to you for recognizing what an amazing like story this this whole thing and and the way you placed you pieced it together was just really wonderful uh and i mean a fascinating time period in and of itself between two world wars and the overlap of prohibition and the great depression um i guess did we cover this all, all I, I know you talked a little bit about how what was the very first thing that drew you to this story? Was was there like one piece of it or was it the setting or was it the time era? What was the very first thing that found you on this path to writing this book? Uh, well, it was this, 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 yeah, the unexplored era of FDR as governor, which. Okay, so that which, was the I mean, first thing that yeah, you were yeah. interested which, in? I mean, there's a reason it's not well explored because he was not actually very, didn't do a lot and was not mm. very interesting in and of itself as gov as governor. Um, but there were all these things going on in New York City uh, that were extremely interesting. And they actually played a role in his because he was already planning to run for president. And he yes. really didn't want to, you know, confront Tammany Hall because he needed their support uh, to to get the Democratic nomination because they were so powerful, not only in New York City and New York State, but also in the in U.S. politics in general. Uh, so. So, yeah, it ended up being this this space that kind of I did no one really expected to be you know have as much going on as it did yes, yeah that's um very cool something I found interesting is that post the story when LaGuardia finally became um mayor of New York City he's a Republican and FDR is a Democrat but they worked together very happily and like accomplished so much which uh I really think the world should look at today to see when the two parties can come together, how much they can, they can do when they don't hate each other. The, but, uh, um, yeah. I mean, it was, you know, we have, you know, we've had things like that, like uh, Mayor Bloomberg when he first ran uh, in his first term was what ran as a Republican. It's a little bit being a Republican in New York city, especially as a mayor has always been a little different from, you know, what it means at the national level. Uh, mm, but mm -hmm. It was also it was also a different a different era. I mean, there were actually a lot of uh, very liberal and progressive Republicans uh, at that time, and LaGuardia was one of them. Uh, now, mm. now, you know, unfortunately, we're so divided and so polarized that you 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 very rarely see that kind of interaction and cooperation. Right. I'm just so fascinated by the depth of historical information in this book. And it's like uh, just so meticulously endnoted, footnoted. Um, how do you go about writing something like this? Like, Because I, I see you in the basement of a dreary library or in these historical societies searching through dusty archives. And uh, is that what it's like? Are you, or are you able to use the internet for most of your work these days? I, I mean, it, it's both. I, there, I definitely was able to use the the internet for a lot, and I got a lot of the a lot of the detail that like helps me make this a narrative and not just like a dry history came actually from newspapers, um, mm -hmm. particularly like the Daily News, which was just all over this this crime. And I write about one of the figures, characters that I write about uh, was a Daily News reporter named uh, Grace Robinson, a crime reporter. Uh, who was just this, you know, she, she was a pioneer of a uh, pioneer uh, female journalist and uh, just an excellent reporter and a great writer. Um, so that, and those are all digitized. So I was, you know, able to get all right. those. Um, I was uh, spending, you know, there's, you know, we have various archives uh, in New York City and there wasn't actually as much as I'd hoped 
about this case in those. Uh, I was particularly spent time in the the Bronx courthouse as an archive and just it's completely disorganized. And the uh, so I, would, I was, you know, digging there. There was a dusty room where I was digging through files. Uh, so <laughs> nice. I, I, I did have uh, I did have that as well. I'm a big fan of like old time vernacular. And uh, you have this quote in your book from Abel Green and Variety magazine about Times Square. And I, I wanted to go over it with you. But first, I'll just give the quote like. Every gimmick imaginable goes on the big street from fake auction rooms to shell game. Dame baited speaks operating openly. Creepers and badger workers with improv methods. Undercover rendezvous of intermediate sex luring Freudian students and everything else. So, like, I don't understand a lot of that. Maybe you can explain <laughs> some of that. Fake auction rooms. Is it just a fake auction or? Uh, you know, I, I'm not, I believe that is, yeah, that they were, uh, selling like fake, uh, you know, fake art pieces for fake ex art, uh, fake example, the antiques and stuff. So I'm less familiar with that. And the shell game was a popular con, uh, you probably, you know, where, where like, you know, the, the people would be, you know, guess, you know, where Cups the, where the bead is under the shell. Yeah. Uh, and you know, that was, it was pretty common and, uh, people actually lost a fair amount of money that way or made a fair amount of money um the 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 freudian bit was an allusion to homosexuality i think you know, i'm wondering uh, is that what that is yeah yeah um, dame baited uh, speaks that's obviously just a woman trying to lure someone into a speakeasy yep creepers and badger workers <laughs> what the hell uh, cops and robbers maybe creepers i don't know um no, and I, I knew Badger Workers, but it's it's escaping me now. So <laughs> I love. All I mean, that it's stuff. quite I that that it. whole quote is like quite yeah. mouthful and and quite the uh, thing to wrap your head around for sure. Yeah, the the whole originally, you know, I kind of took some snippets of it, but the whole the whole article is even is even longer. It's uh, it's uh, it was fun to read. I, I I like just you know he was you know he was literary, right? He was writing for a magazine. I like the the quotes that you know, the newspapers would pick up just from the, you know, from the various gangsters and just like the way they, you know, the way they talked. Uh, and, you know, it's great to, you know, all the quotes in my book, they're all, it's nonfiction. They're all, they're all sourced. Uh, and they were all things that, you know, meticulously people said to sourced with notes. Yeah. So I want to go back a little bit to something that we talked about before. Uh, many people have heard of the butterfly effect, how the flap of a butterfly's wing in Brazil can cause a tornado in Texas. And, it does seem to apply to our butterfly here as well. Um, and that there was a tornado of change that resulted from from her death. But and I even took it a, a back a little bit further with like, you know, you just think to me, a huge portion of this story, like so much of it rested for me on what happened to her with her daughter. And I just wonder like if, you know, she hadn't had such a, bad relationship with her husband and things hadn't ended so poorly and he if he really had had um set her up if like that hadn't started that whole chain of events and then you know to take it even further than that do you think the the murderers and those who set her up you know further down the line could have had any idea just how big this case would become and, and how it would change the city of new york yeah no one no one had any any idea certainly the murderers they were you know they were you know working within their own you know, severe and had their own issues. I mean, they knew, you know, they, they knew that she had talked to 
the CPRA commission. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, they knew there was, you know, they were worried about her kind of going public with some of her secrets, but no, they had, you know, they had no sense that, you know, by killing her, they would actually, you know, create this explosion in the media and, you know, this, this change. I don't think anybody anticipated that. And I don't think, even think anybody, even right after the murder, I mean, the, the paper, it was like a, um, a, you know, a couple months later, as the case was dragging on and still not solved, and the and all of a sudden, you know, this started this the Seabury investigation started ramping up, and the papers were just marveling about how this you know this seemingly unrelated murder had you know created this uh, this this change that had had, had uh, become this um, uh, catalyst for you know for this huge change. It was amazing. And it's kind of a shame that that's, you know, that's been, that part of it has been forgotten uh, mm-hmm. in the history. You know, there, there's histories of the Seabury investigation and of Jimmy Walker, but the role of Vivian Gordon murder has, uh, has been lost. Mm-hmm. It really is a butterfly effect. If you think about it, it's cool that it's, she was a Broadway butterfly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it's great. It's a great point. Actually, it was not, that wasn't planned as part of the title, but I love it. <laughs> Um, the Roaring Twenties. You know, it's so interesting to me that it was believed alcohol prohibition would decrease crime, vice, and sin, but instead it had the complete opposite effect. It gave all these gangsters so much power and money, creating jazz clubs, speakeasies, theaters, brothels. You say it inspired people to quote indulge in vice as a creative act of defiance which I absolutely love. I love that quote. Um, I've actually indulged in vice as a creative act of defiance <laughs> myself. Um, do you want to maybe give us a little more perspective on all that? Uh, thanks. No, I, I, I'm uh, glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, it was, you know, this was before the 1920s. It was, uh, it was still Victorian era, you know, people dressed mm-hmm. in, in petticoats and, uh, you know, uh, high buttons and the, uh, in this era, you know, when this prohibition, which was particularly unpopular in places like New York, um, you know, it came, you know, there were, you know, we had this huge Irish population here. Uh, and, you know, it was the, a lot of people were very bitter and angry about prohibition. And so they simply defied it. And that defiance, you know, gave them, you know, license to uh, create defiance in other ways as well. And, in, in, you the, in what they wore, in you know who the who and how much sex they had the in uh you know how they cut their hair you know the women cut their you know bobbed their hair Mm -hmm. uh they wore short skirts uh they you know they partied all night with gangsters as we talked about so it, it was like as if you know they'd been living this kind of cloistered restricted existence for decades and just you know in the act of defying prohibition kind of threw off the bounds uh, of the cultural restrictions. And so as a result, you had, you know, you also had a, you know, uh, creative evolution of, you know, the, um, you know, people like, uh, like Fitzgerald, right. And Mm -hmm. uh, the, you know, you had the Harlem Renaissance where, um, you know, black, uh, authors and artists uh, and performers, um, you know, you know, were so creative and able to kind of actually 
you know, bring what they had to offer to, you know, to the, you know, the white New Yorkers and the white world who hadn't even experienced that before. So you had, you know, you just had a lot of amazing things going on uh, in this era, but also, you know, came with a lot of, a lot of crime. And so that was your, you had this kind of freedom, uh, but it also gave license to these, uh, to these criminals and these corrupt cops. Uh, and so that was like the other uh, side of this coin. Yeah. Kind of going along with like the, you know, sin and, and, um, you know, abiding by prohibition versus not and and the just craziness of the time. So when Matthew and I were discussing the book, we were kind of just, you know, just talking about everything randomly and, and um, picking up on things that had stood out to us. And one thing that we talked about was how people in the book were able to tear through so much money. They were making money hand over fist, but losing it just as fast, Vivian in particular. Um where did all the that money go? Was it bad investments, crazy nightlife? Matthew and I were trying to like hypothesize on that. Uh, well, certainly there were a lot of a lot of spendthrifts. Uh, Vivian Gordon was actually pretty good with her money. She was, mm -hmm. you know, she she was careful with it. Uh, her, her her boyfriend John Radiloff, uh, not so much, and he yeah, he was... <laughs> manipulated her and preyed on her, and you know was responsible actually for a lot of her losses mm -hmm. uh, by you know trying to get her involved in these in these schemes. Um, so, you know, he was certainly a spendthrift and there were a lot of those, but really it was the, it was the, the stock market crash that, okay. that, you know, just destroyed everything because it, you know, first of all, people had all these investments, uh, that became worthless. That happened to Vivian Gordon. She had a bunch of stocks that became worthless. Mm. Uh, but, uh, it also like dried up, you know, uh, you know, people lost their, you know, a lot of people were out of work and, you know, in Vivian Gordon's case, it like dried up her, the money coming in. She didn't no longer had all these, you know, spendthrift men that she could, you know, exploit and prey upon uh, for their money. And so she, you know, suddenly didn't have money coming in. But, you know, um, for some reason, the obsession and a fascination with true crime, uh, it's often considered a modern phenomenon. But it was always immensely popular, which you point out in your book, describing how newspapers, which you just mentioned, like the Daily News, they basically existed off of uh, sensational crime stories. And I was curious, how do you think the uh, public public's appetite for true crime compares today to back then? And uh, what kind of shifts do you see in the true crime fascination dynamics? That's an interesting question. Uh, I mean, yeah, certainly like novels certainly like books about true crime the uh were not around i mean i really like truman capote i think made that you know uh, made that right. thing um decades ago and uh since then um you know it's become a big uh, a big book genre it certainly wasn't a book genre at that time but yeah, on the flip side, you know, the newspapers, certain newspapers in particular really covered that. And the, you know, that that was that was really the bread and butter, as you said, of the of Daily News and the other tabloids. So so Daily News was uh was the country's first tabloid. They copied it. Uh there was one in London and they copied the model, uh, where they, you know, the papers were half size, uh tabloid mm -hmm. size. That's why they're called tabloids. Uh they were oh, full is of it? I didn't realize that. That, yep. that is interesting. 
Uh, so they were, you know, kind of easier to read and to hold on the subway and they cost less and they had, you know, they had a bunch of pictures and they were written in this very kind of accessible language meant, you know, more for more for working class than for rich folks. Uh, and so, you know, crime and sex were, you know, that's, they were, they, they were all about that. That's how they sold copy. And that's how daily news quickly became the biggest newspaper in the country. Um, by focusing on that. And then, of course, a bunch of other tabloids sprang up and, and followed that model. And, you know, we do still, you know, we still, Daily News still still exists. It's been, you know, a little bit uh, passed by other tabloids, but we still have that model uh, today, but it's less crime focused. And I think, you know, that, that interest in crime has been taken up in, uh, in books and, of course, in podcasts uh, uh, such as this. I mean, the podcast has been, uh, obviously been been huge really changed what it uh you know how we learn about and how we think about uh true crime yes yes i love that answer and it's so interesting that's very i don't think i knew that about the tabloid either it sounds like vaguely familiar maybe i'd heard it at one point yeah we uh we also wanted to ask we we know you grew up in Iowa, but you've been living in New York City for 24 years. And that's that's a yep. pretty big difference between those two places. What is it about New York that you fell in love with that made you stay? Uh, you know, I for me, places for me are like are like people. Like sometimes, you know, you you meet somebody and you just connect with them instantly. And you don't it's not even necessarily about, you know, what their, you know, what their attributes are. It's not about it's just you just like there's something uh, that you just connect with. And I, I had the same thing with places. I find if I, if I connect with a place, I, I will always love it. And if I, you know, if I don't connect, I will never love it. Hmm. Um, I lived in uh, San Francisco for a couple of years and, you know, I mean, it's, it's a wonderful city. I'm not, I have no, I had nothing concrete, you know, there were there, many amazing things about it. It just wasn't for me. It just didn't feel hmm. right. Whereas uh, New York uh, just always did whenever I, you know, long before I moved here, when I visited, um, I, I do remember kind of the moment that before I moved that I, I fell in love with the place and wanted to move was uh, there was a, I was visiting a cousin and walking, I had, a, had some time. So I was walking through Central Park and it was, there was like this late spring snow, this really sticky cotton candy snow, like in, in mm. all the in all the trees and walking through, there's a place in Central Park called the Ramble, uh, which is like forest-like and just walking through this beautiful place with like these, this cotton candy snow all over the trees. It was just amazing. And then you can see like the, the skyscrapers in the, in the distance. So I love that. I love the, I love the energy of the place. Uh, I love how it's, you know, it's always open. Uh, I love yes. how th there's so much going on here. Um, it's, and it's frankly, I've got a, I've got a, uh, daughter now and it's, it's great for for kids too uh there's like so much activity so many activities and so many other kids around um it's uh i love it here you obviously wow. love the history as well uh, yeah no that's been that has been one of the treats to writing this book is is really kind of digging into uh you know new york city's history and how we got there especially like at this moment which is probably one of the most interesting points in new york city's history i mean the roaring 20s you know even the even aside from the the, the politics that was going on just that that era in new york it's it's uh one one of a kind nice a great answer i can so visualize the uh the cotton candy snow in the trees it's <laughs> lovely you got any new projects coming up 
anything you're working on now? Um, not yet. I, you know, with me, when I like, it's, it takes me a while to kind of withdraw from the book and like, it hasn't, you know, we haven't even, we haven't hit the pub date yet. And so I'm, you know, involved in, you know, promotion and doing interviews and that sort of thing. So I think, you know, in a, in a few months, I'll start to, you know, breathe in, uh, start thinking around, thinking about what I want to do. I mean, I, 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 I definitely want to be writing narrative history, uh, more narrative history, um, Possibly with, uh, possibly, but not necessarily with true crime. I do want it to be something suspenseful, where you know you're really telling the story that that uh, brings brings readers along. So, I mean, true crime is definitely a good way to do that. Uh, so, if I find if I find the right the right crime, uh, the uh, I'll uh, I'll do that again. That's the thing I, about true crime. There's so many of them. There's so many goddamn crimes out there. You can never run out. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's for sure. Yeah, so you can. Uh, I have more information about the book on my website, uh, which is my name, uh, Michael Wolreich, W O L R A I C H dot com. Uh, I've got information about the book, some photos. Uh, my events are listed there, uh, and there are uh, links to buy the book. Are there more photos from then from just in the book in there? Uh, the ones that I, you know, the ones that I have there, uh, they're not. I haven't put that many in. I think I'll add more. Um, there are a couple that weren't in the book. I'm going to check that out for sure because it's uh, like those characters are so fascinating. I, I love seeing their faces. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm so glad they put photos into the book because uh, the, you know, they, this is my first book that we've done with photos. And, you know, my editor just did a great job of selecting those and, and curating those. So uh, there's it's some really, great ones. It adds there. to it. Absolutely. Yes. Ladies and gentlemen, the book is The Bishop and the Butterfly, Murder, Politics, and the End of the Jazz Age. The author is Michael Rulreich. It goes on sale everywhere you get fine books on February 6th. Get yourself a copy. It's fantastic, fun, educational. I'll put links in the show notes. And thank you so much for coming on again. Uh, thanks, thanks so much for having me. I, I really enjoyed it, uh, and it was great. Uh, it was great talking to both of you. Thank you. As always, drop us a line and say hi at murdercoasterpodcast at gmail dot com. That's murdercoasterpodcast at gmail dot com. We will see you Wednesday. Bye.